0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Rocky Mountain MIREC Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and we are touching in from the Dissemination and Implementation Conference here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by Dr. Lindsay Zimmerman, who's going to talk to us a bit today about her work. Uh, So welcome, Lindsay. Good
1: morning, Adam. Glad to be here.
0: Great. Well, Lindsay, as we always do, let's just have you start uh, just telling us a little bit about yourself and also where you come from, why you got into this work, and um, a little bit about the center that you work in.
1: Well, I am a clinical and community psychologist by training. Most people know what a clinical psychologist is, and I'm licensed and could be providing individual therapy. But community psychology is, I think, probably the bread and butter of what I do in my job as an implementation scientist at the National Center for PTSD. And we're out in, my branch of it is out in California. There's five locations, and the National Center for PTSD was established by a public law by Congress nearly 30 years ago. And at my division out in California, in Palo Alto, We focus on dissemination and training activities, which really incorporates a lot of implementation science, which is uh, what I do and what brought me to this meeting, as well as a lot of really technologically advanced projects, including um, some apps that listeners might have seen that focus on PTSD and mood and mindfulness and and other things that come from an evidence-based place, but also are trying to get out into the community and out to veterans who might benefit from them. So. Um, It's a great place to be as a clinical and community psychologist because I'm doing a lot of partnership-based work, and that is a lot of what you get trained to do as a community psychologist.
0: Excellent. Fascinating. I didn't realize that the National Center for PTSD has been around for 30 years already.
1: Yeah. It's actually a really exciting place to try to build from what people have been doing for a long time because some people were there when um, PTSD was just becoming formalized as a diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and then were the ones fighting for a center that really was focused on the need of people to have you know, state of the science research, education initiatives, and increasingly what I do is actually a lot of consulting with frontline staff, managers, about what they could do to reach more of their veterans in their community with the highest quality care that the VA offers. And this meeting is here to remind us that these are not VA problems or (laughs) veteran problems, but that these are healthcare problems Mm -hmm. and um, they're not easy to solve. And I like coming to a meeting like this where folks are from Kaiser and Group Health and all these other healthcare systems and we're, you know, sharing our best strategies for trying to make sure that patients can get uh, whatever they may need at the right time. Uh,
0: Yeah, I've been experiencing that too, where there's really this beautiful exchange of ideas and people coming from different systems and even different parts of the world Uh, not even just U.S., so very, very interesting conference so far.
1: Yeah, that's right. We brought over a colleague for our session on participatory modeling from the U.K., and they were kind enough to invite me out to speak at Exeter and at their health services research meeting in the U.K. last year. And for me, it was really exciting and interesting, first of all, because it really is an international meeting that comes from a different sort of point of view in terms of its scholarship and The politics around healthcare delivery, actually. But they share something in common with us in VA, which is a desire to make sure that no patient falls through the cracks in the entire patient population. So for a lot of healthcare, if you think about your typical private practice, like my brother has his own practice and his wife, Mm -hmm. if their practice is full, then it's full. And if someone in the community isn't served by their practice, well, that's just... Unfortunate, but sometimes how things go. And some of the unique opportunity that we have, and some of the unique need for what we're doing with participatory modeling, I think, is because we're committed to making sure that no veterans fall through the cracks and that we're really trying to make sure that any patient in our population, whether they be in Guam or Puerto Rico or rural Idaho or downtown Detroit, can get that same high quality care when they need it.
0: I really like the way you put that, and just Thinking about how we can come up with solutions uh, to kind of have the safety net and catch all of the veterans, all of the patients in our in our system, um, and so I wanted to dive into that with you a little bit more about this uh, participatory modeling approach that you are innovating. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what participatory in, and engaged research and what that process looks like before we move into the modeling piece of it?
1: Well, so I chose to go to my graduate program at Georgia State University in Atlanta to work with a mentor who formed community advisory boards to guide every stage of her work. And that was something that she was doing related to HIV in urban communities in Southeast U.S., and in particular African American community. And by the end of my graduate training, my dissertation work was in South Africa, similarly working with families to try to prevent the rate of incidence which was growing fastest among youth and I think that there's something really um I guess I I really am drawn to the conceptualization of participatory methods as a fundamental questioning of your philosophy of science Mm -hmm. and what your I do like to use the jargon what your epistemology is about where knowledge comes from who creates it who um, is maybe absent, or whose knowledge is not privileged in our current, you know, power structure? Actually, in our systems, and I think that a, a good scientist is always looking for what's missing from truly understanding and conceptualizing a problem. And so, I was really drawn to these methods, and now I'm um, several, you know, more than 10 years into trying to to engage in participatory work. And part of what that what the gift of being in the VA actually enables me to do is to be committed and in my setting locally building partnerships over time because respect and trust and uh, true synergistic partnerships take time to develop. It takes a lot of time to engage stakeholders and have more folks catch on to what you're doing and to make the mistakes and repair them and all of that work. So I think, um, I think that for the participatory part, what you're really trying to do is locate any activity that you're doing at any moment in time on a continuum of who's at the table. And being at the table is really not enough. I mean, you actually have to be focusing on are we equally benefiting all partners and increasing their capacities in relationship to their own goals every step of the way. So I'll give an example. Um, When we first started with um, our research program, I was going around trying to figure out who would make sense in addiction and mental health care to be the patient perspective. And it actually brought up a lot of interesting, almost ethical questions because I was feeling that when a patient is sort of making that critical moment of of coming in and saying, you know, in the VA for example, I need help, I'm ready for help for, you know, my substance misuse or my depression, I got up and out of the house and made it over here to this clinic today um, I think that that's maybe the time for them to just focus 100% on their treatment and their recovery and making it through their program or their, their treatment plan. And in the VA, we have this amazing cadre of patient navigators and advocates known as peer support specialists who play a lot of roles. And in my healthcare system at VA Palo Alto Healthcare System, the leaders. Uh, in the social work program. Now some have moved on. Sony Adams is now over in Charleston and Jill Hudson. So leaders really focused on the professional development of peer support specialists. And I went to this town hall and ran into some of them. And I was like, listen, I'm a, I'm a new investigator at this place called the National Center for PTSD. and I've been trained. My, my whole professional training has suggested that what I would never want to do is start up a research program for veterans in the VA, without veterans at the table, helping me select the right research questions, the right methods, the right grants to apply for, to make sure that whatever we're pursuing really matters to veterans. And some of the veterans that were there, Eric Ontiveros, uh, Ren Kramer, we, we, we just basically started talking about how uh, it, there was something really important for peer support specialists to be able to, to take their boundary-spanning role, because if you think about it, they, have, they play the role of staff, and they're practiced at their experience of disclosing their recovery experience. They're practiced at sitting in their multidisciplinary team and trying to convey to other colleagues from psychiatry, social work, nursing, etc., what the veteran perspective, what veteran-centered care would mean. And nobody else really has that role. It's like a very unique, if you go back to this epistemology idea, it's a very unique set of knowledge and lived experience that they have. You could have veteran patients who've never played that role as staff, and they would have one experience but not the other. Or you could have, there's many staff who are veterans or who are staff, but they haven't practiced their disclosure stories. They haven't, you know, there's, there's really just a unique role that peer support specialists have. And so we formed, about four years ago now, from a blank sheet of paper in these early conversations, what we now call VAPOR, V-A-P-O-R, VAPOR and it stands for the Veteran Advisory Partnership for Operations and Research. And we have a board and an alumni network, and we, again, the reason I emphasize the blank sheet of paper is because we really did co-create what that would look like from the ground up, Mm -hmm. and we continue to consult. We meet twice a month and go through every decision that we make as a team about where, where we would go. So, the story, to bring this back, about why it's important to build capacity of each partner is at different points throughout the partnership, we didn't know what would be needed to make it work. And I remember D.C. Barlow, um, veteran of the Marine Corps, he said to me, you know, it's really cool, Lindsay, that we're sitting at the table with the de- deputy director of blah, blah blah, and this and that. but we're not speaking this language, we don't We don't speak research, we don't know what you guys are talking about. How, what can we do so that we can really hang at the table and in these conversations? Just being at the table was a first step, but it wasn't enough. And so over time, we've come up with a lot of different things to do. So for example, it includes all the peers taking the city certification that most researchers will be familiar with is in human subjects protections. Um, but, for me, it was really important that that be something that DC and others felt they needed and we were responding to what they wanted to do and not some sort of requirement that I dreamed up or something like that. And, and every step of the way, we've really tried to um, negotiate what they really think would um, be valuable to you know, really contribute to the partnership. And another flavor of that was actually we were talking to the national leader in VA of Certified Peer Support Specialist, Dan O'Brien Matza. And the peers on Vapor, our advisory partnership, really wanted our program that I'm talking about at this conference to be co-facilitated by peers everywhere in BHA. And we actually took that for about a year all the way up to the leadership as an idea until we realized that there were sort of two things that we wouldn't be able to do. One, we didn't actually have enough peers to probably support that and scale that. And we learned that peers are in a different um, state of implementation as a program and as a service line across VA. And so the idea that everybody was ready to take on this new role of peer specialist, not just being a patient navigator and advocate, not just being a member of a multidisciplinary team, but actually being a VA quality improvement advisor in national quality improvement initiatives, was something that further kind of reduced the numbers of peers who probably would be ready for that. And so as a result, what we ended up doing is taking our our own VAPOR peer support specialists who've all been in their roles as peer specialists for four, five, six, seven years now, and we've incorporated their stories about, you know, what was it like that first time that they came into the VA? What, you know, when we're focusing on access initiatives in VA, for from for some staff who are tired and burned out, it can just sound like, oh, access, the uh. And to remember, you know, the, there's one of our veterans on the vapor board who tells the story of the day he knew he was done using and how he walked by this stop sign where he used to buy drugs and just started crying and running to the VA and, um, you know, he's been in recovery for over 30 years now. and those kinds of stories are really compelling. So we, we've incorporated videos of, of the veterans talking about their experiences in VA that fit whatever the kind of quality improvement problem is we're focusing on because you know stories remind us and motivate us about why we do this work. And sometimes, um, as one of the videos, Tammy Thompson, an Air Force uh, veteran, says, she's like, I think this will remind everyone and keep veterans at the center, which was our goal. Um, of incorporating. So even if they're not co-facilitating live every session now, although we could (laughs) maybe do it in the future, um, we are making sure that veterans are, you know, at every, at all these meetings, helping us make all these decisions, thinking about ways to keep the veteran perspective at the center of what we're doing. And since I've taken so much time just talking about one stakeholder group in our work. I haven't even talked about our other partnerships. I don't know. We're just kind of going, doing a deep dive. But I think probably rather than doing a skim off the surface of who we're all working with and all the acronyms involved, since this is VA, it does help to think about back to the time it takes to really do participatory work and locate each activity on a continuum of engagement and to kind of think about what that looks like and means. And I, I really have learned a lot about how much time it takes because we have one veteran, Leroy Edwards, who said, you know, it took me probably a year of realizing that you were telling us you're up here with me at the podium. And he's like, even though we were working together, I was so used to sitting, feeling like I was sitting in the seats as an audience member, listening to the researchers, listening to the leaders. And you kept telling me that like, Hey, Leroy, what do you think? And, um, You know, what he and Ren were saying at one point was, it's actually not just being invited. It's not actually just increasing our capacity. It's when our ideas get acted on and followed through, and we see that impact happening that we really, that's what motivates and energizes the ongoing partnership. And it's probably more helpful for listeners to just hear, even if it's only one part of the larger coalition of partners, to hear some in-depth talk of what that has looked like over the last several years than to just hear a brief overview of who all we've Sure, been yeah, thanks with.
0: so much for that. I really, I mean, it is a huge, like, fundamental paradigm shift in the way, especially historically, that research has been done and the mm-hmm. process with which to, like you said, even develop the research question and make sure that veterans are at the center of that. So, um, yeah, it's very uh, exciting to hear, you know, how you've taken that model and really uh, brought it forward in the VA system. So,
1: you know, it's interesting. You say you say the paradigm shift. I do think it comes from a different paradigm. But for somebody who sort of like sought out that training from the beginning of their grad school, okay, it's it's really interesting for me to like the first day I got to my job and I had this implementation. You know, that's my actual position description is implementation scientist. And for those who may or may not know listening in. This is really the study of you know, how there could be some sort of scientific consensus about what is most likely to work for patients and why it takes so long for patients to actually get it in the real world. That's a huge you know, problem that we have in research and that's what these meetings are about In this whole field and discipline has, has been about. But from a, from a sort of dyed-in-the-world wool, Uh, participatory person when I got there to my job there was no doubt that I had no idea how to solve their problem meaning I knew the literature I knew the research methods I had I had something to contribute I'm not saying I have no value to add Mm -hmm. but I definitely wasn't the person at the point of care making EBP decisions in the clinic evidence-based practice EBP decisions over and over again every day I wasn't the patient trying to get those treatments to meet my need and so it was very, it's very obvious that there's, there was a missing chunk of expertise. In fact, the expertise closest to the problem, mm-hmm. most likely, I would argue, to have new insights that haven't been considered before. And I think that what people, I think, find daunting sometimes is how do you synthesize all the types of expertise and how do you set up structures to navigate the missteps that you'll inevitably make or, you know, confusion that can occur in a process. And and, and for me, I just, it has to be something that you do uh, o- over time because the idea that someone could just pop in at the last minute and help you make sure your grant was veteran-centered or something like that is is just not how things work. I've actually taken to calling it, the lasagna problem.
0: Okay. (laughs) Tell us about the lasagna problem.
1: (laughs) Well, the lasagna problem to me is that, you know, ideally if you're a programmatic researcher who's really following a line of inquiry, then when you propose a grant, you've been building up preliminary data, you've been reading literature, finding the right team of investigators to focus on it that bring the right methods to bear on the problem. And all of those decisions along the way are charting a course. That unless you have all your partners at the table for all of those little decisions, then the lasagna problem is that you're basically like trying to change what's in the lasagna five minutes before it's ready to come out of the you know oven. You can't do <laughs> a drive-by at the last second and and change that course. So you really do need from the early research question and the early grant and the methods and should we use this measure and you know all of those things. And sometimes um, we've had some really. Uh, intense conversations about research, researchers reaching out and saying we hear you have an advisory partnership and we'd like to run our recruitment strategy by your partnership. And something about the recruitment strategy really offends and upsets um, the partners. And we had to realize that really we couldn't be people's catch all as like a patient panel to get their perspective. We really, we're a strategic partnership. We're trying to work with a lot of other partners in the VA. Um, And I'll just at least briefly mention them because there's so many, but VA employee education services, which is making sure that all the disciplines in addiction and mental health care can get accredited training for learning from our program, Modeling to Learn, in their own existing work groups, their teams. And that includes certified peer support specialists, nurses, psychologists, social workers, and psychiatry. Um, Also, we've been working with the Veterans Engineering Resource Center, Office of Strategic Integration. It's a new entity that I think is going to start being called um, the Institute for Healthcare Quality Improvement or something like that. And so we've been working with engineers there. And then, of course, most importantly, uh, I think perhaps is our operations partners at the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Again, formerly known as Mental Health Services, <laughs> Office of Mental Health o- Operations, and the Office of Suicide Prevention, now sort of zippered into one uh, singularly focused group of of experts and colleagues. so um, but yeah, I think I think that I was trying to articulate how funny it can and can sound that it's so surprising mm-hmm. to incorporate experts at the point of care and consumers of our healthcare, and um, also just kind of, again, come back to the, you know, in describing the lasagna problem, come back to the idea that you make a lot of decisions all along the way, and you really do need to keep those partnerships going all along the way, and um, otherwise, you'll end up at some sort of place, and you can't easily change course at that point. Right. So, lots of iteration in our work and uh-huh. pivoting. Lots of pivoting <laughs> in response to new incoming. Very
0: agile, kind of responsive and proactive in some ways, and maybe even less reactive once you get in from the ground up and you're baking this in. It should. You maybe won't get thrown as many surprises along the way. Um,
1: yes, <laughs> I think you you do have to be ready to continually um refine what you're doing in response to new information and feedback over and over and over again and that is um really sort of common in my milieu over in silicon valley where everybody talks about doing that sort of thing but not necessarily how a lot of academic research typically goes and we've even taken to embracing that i think is related to participatory research the open science movement and including, we have something, um, if anybody goes to GitHub, one of the most common open source platforms used around the world, they could look up my username, LZIM, L-Z-I-M. And then there's two repos. One is our modeling to learn repository, which we're handling sort of more like a release. So every new release of our modeling to learn program, all the session guides and all the, you know, updates of any refinements or fixes that we've made based on user feedback are there. And then we also have our Open Science Repo Team PSD which stands for Team Participatory System Dynamics. And there you can actually see all of our discussions, all of our iterations, all of our design reviews. We have work groups for everybody who's working on the simulation user interface, we've built the quantitative work group, the qualitative work group, the modeling work group, and it's all open source, all there so you can really see that deliberative iterative process happening online all the pull requests, all the issues discussed, and Mm -hmm. so we really think that um, one of the great freedoms that we have is to try to contribute to the public commons. Yes, the public good, but the public commons of contributing, you know, these types of methods and ways of working, Um, and so our code is up there, our models are up there, people can download the session guides for our program, and we hope that they do, because Mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, we know that the problems we're trying to address with our program aren't just like VA problems or they're not even really addiction and mental health problems alone. Some of what we're working on and what we presented at the conference, um, what I'm really excited about it is that we're pursuing methods and of course sharing them, but pursuing methods that could really be helpful in almost any area of healthcare. I think. Emphasized the participatory part, but maybe not the modeling part.
0: I was going to say that it sounds like a great <laughs> transition to tell us a little bit more about what we mean by participatory modeling and also a chance for you to tell us a little bit more about uh, the participatory system dynamics group and also your system, the modeling to learn.
1: Yeah, so, we, we've moved from having a participatory system dynamics approach, which we studied in a, a NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse funded R21, to actually building a program called Modeling to Learn that we think will be more accessible to everyone and ben- where they're benefiting from our hundreds of clinic meetings um, and getting to a more refined program that they could kind of pick up and run with in their own settings or for their own local needs. So modeling to learn, we call it that because we don't have any solutions already baked up and in our back pocket that we're trying to get people to buy into. So if everybody was hoping I would stop talking and just tell them what works to get patients the right care at the right time, I would tell them we have some resources that are free and online and accessible to you, Um, but we don't know right now you know, in advance without partnering with you and, and working with you with your own data and these tools, what is likely to work in your local setting. So what drew me to this modeling is actually a community psychologist by the name of David Lounsbury, who works at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Bronx, uh, New York City. I saw him presenting at a conference, the community psychology conference, a few years back, and he was showing how... Improving health services delivery in the New York health departments could actually lead to population-level viral suppression by in, engaging in getting HIV-positive persons through the healthcare system, through health service delivery, better. And it was actually leaning to this very important quality of life, um, you know, improvement. And when he presented this talk, and then he, he sort of mentioned at the end, and we've been building this the entire time with patients who use the health department, frontline staff from the health department, et cetera. For me as a participatory researcher and a mixed methods, meaning a qualitative and quantitative researcher, this was like mixed methods on steroids. Mm -hmm. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what are you talking about? Please meet with me. So we had lunch, but I was not at the National Center for PTSD yet. I was still at the University of Washington on a T32 a fellow research fellowship funded by the National Institutes of Health and I was working in the emergency department with stakeholders and we were doing needs assessment focused on this other policy in in um, trauma centers and a up at Harborview it's a level 1 high volume urban trauma center and I was sort of having this feeling like if my career development award, this five-year type of award, a K award that you try to get when you're on fellowship and you think you're going to do academic research, if this doesn't fund, then these people from the community who've been wanting to partner with me and that we've been collecting this data and so forth, it's like a fiction. It'll just like disappear because that's what the soft money medical research environment can be like. And so when this position had opened up at the National Center for PTSD and it was a position to, to do implementation science full time and i knew i would be there and my ability to be there and partner with people was not going to just vanish <laughs> you know sure. grant by grant i jumped at the opportunity to really live out those scientific values but i didn't i wasn't collaborating with david i i really did start this process of like working with vapor that i've already described being in the setting and just getting a sense of like well what's the need here and I'm really standing on the shoulders of a lot of folks at my center, at the National Center for PTSD, who've been leading these training programs and dissemination efforts for years, and really evaluating what gets in the way. So, for example, uh, prolonged exposure is a uh, psychotherapy that can really help patients struggling with PTSD, and there it's been—you know—they've trained thousands of providers to deliver it out of my center for years. And when I arrived. And they were asking folks, well, what gets in the way from you getting it to more of your patients? They were saying, well, they're describing it as system factors. They're describing it as, you know, there's competing priorities in their setting. They have multiple roles. They have to get folks into care. They have to focus on access, but they also want them to get the EVPs. We know that it actually, they sort of had what system dynamicists would call feedback thinking. Mm -hmm. Like we know that if we don't actually meet their need, and that people aren't actually getting better, that over time it actually is going to make our access problems for new veterans worse because they won't actually be able to move on and get their treatment needs met. But that was they were still sort of like the main mechanism or intervention to help people was really training and consultation and not how to address these additional factors in their setting. And after sitting in clinics a lot, I've really come to realize that what most people mean by the system is the thing bigger than me that prevents me from getting my patient to the care that I think that they should have. (laughs) And um, people even kind of get to the, to sort of like splitting on the system and being like, I'm the good provider that's gonna help you navigate this bad system. And that was something I saw in the emergency department outside of the VA. It's something that can happen anytime that people do sense that these larger dynamics are kind of determining the types of care that they can give their patients to. And so that was when I reached back out to David and said, David, that modeling thing that you were doing, that mixed methods on steroids where you were working with people from the beginning and building models, um, I think that's what the VA needs for frontline staff and providers to be able to manage what they're calling system factors. But I'm not sure what they are. And so David and I started sitting with clinics. We actually got invited in by a clinic manager who had recently done a lean redesign plan do study act cycle and um it succeeded and failed depending on what um, variable you looked at so they set a goal to you know increase the number of patients to 40 percent who moved straight from their intake to getting at least two psychotherapy visits within their first month and it from You know, certain acronyms we like to use, like making a smart goal, a goal that is specific for the S, measurable, action oriented, realistic, and time bound. uh, They definitely did a good job of making it specific, measurable, and time bound. 40% will get this, two visits within 30 days, and they set a goal of getting it, you know, by April we'll do this. Well, when April came around, which is when our project started, by the way, because they reached out to us after that. They were finding things like, yes, we're increasing our scheduling, but then no one's actually completing these visits. Like it was like dropping right back off. Mm-hmm. And from system dynamics terms, when you're looking at a whole system, then you can look at things like how you could schedule in a way that leads to a peak where lots of people are waiting but they can't actually get in to complete those visits and you can start to look at the whole patient flow from referral to waiting to start to the starting rate in patients per week actually moving into a service to how many are in service and how quickly are they leaving that service. And so David and I came in and sat down with folks again with a blank sheet of paper and started with some very basic questions like, how does a veteran's need get met around here? What happens before that? What happens after that? How do you know if it's gone well? How do you know if it hasn't gone well? What evidence is there that it's gone well? (laughs) And we just kept iterating and iterating and iterating until we now actually have in the Modeling to Learn program, a data user interface where frontline staff Based on their um, security clearance, that they already have their badge for actually ac- accessing the electronic health record, they can put that in, type in, if they're internal to the VA, mtl.how, modeling to learn mtl.how, forward slash data, and it will take them to a secure website where they can query their own data and pull together their own team's data, looking from today, the moment they click the button, back for the last two years, and see. What happened to all their patients in their team? Where did they end up? Where did they go? And we were looking at trends, because sometimes, for example, we have these benchmark performance measures in VA that can create a lot of anxiety for staff. And part of the frustration with them can be, like, you might be maintaining the same level of quality in terms of you're still at the median for something, for VA nationally, but maybe you're serving twice as many veterans as you were before. And veterans can... Tell when they're moving through a clinic like that, patients. I'm sorry, providers can certainly tell when they're kind of pushing it to try to serve twice as many folks while keeping the standard of care at the same level. But the measure looks like they're treading water, which can be so dispiriting, especially when you're in the difficult, high-pressure, you know, work of addiction and mental health care. And so these tools, um, you know, I had providers say really notable things to us before we got started, like we're swimming in v- data in VA. How can you and your new data tools do anything but hurt us, really? Like the idea that data just becomes like another measure that they have to meet. Right. And by the time we built this data UI so that people could query their own data and so forth, and it was at this hyper-local level of them saying, this is my team and these are my patients, then we were hearing words like, this is really validating. Or this is really much more transparent to me because now I can see how my charting is becoming VA data, whereas without that step, it was sort of like they were spending the majority of their day charting, since we now know in healthcare, again, in all healthcare systems, providers are spending more than half their time charting rather than face-to-face with a patient. Um, You know, All that time I was spending charting, it was like going into the ether, and it wasn't feeding back to me and giving me any useful information. And so we've built the ability, and this was something providers really asked for, to get just within a couple of clicks reports of patients, for example, who have a high-risk flag for suicide or who whether they have an open safety plan. We're changing some of our measures um, for suicide prevention in VA right now, but all of the historical data that they had in the chart, as well as any new measures that have been put in place, because they're directly querying the VA corporate warehouse, data warehouse, a giant enterprise-wide SQL data store in the VA, they're actually, if there's a new measure, they can get it. So if, you know, we've just changed to the Columbia or we've, you know, changed from PHQ-9s, these are all standard measures for listeners that are related to suicide prevention, um, if it's in the chart, if it's ever been charted, they can query it and pull it up, and it's it's in real time. And by partnering with the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention, we've also made sure that their data are completely consistent with any performance measures, like our quality measure system um, known as Sail. So they can be sure that in real time, if Sail changes how they're def- defining something in any way, again at the back end level in the corporate data warehouse, we're making sure that they can stay synced and up to date. So we're really as part of our participatory principles, trying to put the frontline staff in the driver's seat, stitching together their own hyper-local data of their own team so that they can query it and understand what's going on. And they asked for these abilities to find a single patient because for program managers and research researchers, seeing like trend lines of data and so forth might be um, you know, the most compelling thing. But for a clinician, it's like, let me find that patient that I can picture how their care went and then look at their data and see how that becomes these data systems and kind of follow that through. And we, again, we iterated to building that tool to that point in the clinic with, with our teams. But I still realize that what is so frustrating about data is that um, it, if you see what you like, like you're like this is a good measure, we're doing really well, and you don't know what explains it, then you might undo that measure tomorrow and not even know, you know, that you're doing that. And similarly, even if you see something you don't like, like all our decisions around here are adding up to something that nobody wants. (laughs) Like you you need to understand causes. You need to understand why the numbers are what they are to do anything about it. And so I felt that we were sort of getting into a space where um, the analogy I've used is if your son or daughter brought you a C on a math test, and all you did was send them away and say, we get A's in this family. You know, <laughs> Performance measures can be like that. They can let their very important role in helping to understand where, where we are as a system and, and up locate yourself against other clinics and facilities around the country. But they can be like, hey, we just get A's in this family. And when people are struggling and they're getting that C on the math test, Actually, what they need are action-oriented insights about what they can do about it, and the data don't often tell you what you can do about it. They're not action-oriented, and so when this clinic invited us in, and we started helping them coming out of their, you know, smart goal that had maybe lost the art of it, the achievable, action-oriented, realistic, time-bound piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we started being able to experiment with their data and capitalize on this giant data store, and I realized. Rather than doing what a lot of, it seems to me, my colleagues in Silicon Valley are doing and saying, we'll take our single solution and just scale it really, really fast, what I was realizing is like we could actually scale the complete localization and tailoring. Because with just a couple tweaks in our code, we made it so that they could drive and have a data user interface and query their own data. And with our simulation models, then they are simulating from their own data to find solutions. So. People are almost always in healthcare at the local team level, flying blind with regard to, like, well, what is our supply demand ratio of of these disciplines of providers? Because for listeners who may not be in healthcare, you may not know that operating at top of license for a psychiatrist who can provide evidence based medications is different than a social worker or a psychologist operating at top of license who maybe would be focusing on an evidence based psychotherapy like cognitive behavioral therapy for depression or some of the other treatments we've rolled out in VA. And so the staffing mix that your team has and how well that matches or doesn't to what your local uh, community needs may be is something that most people, like they know it matters. Like, well, we're short a psychologist or we're short a doc over here. Teams know it, but they don't then have any way to quickly and efficiently optimize it to make sure that they could still find good ways to make sure their veterans in their local community can get the right care at the right time. And so these trade-offs of of fears that people have, like if we really focus on people getting through a full course of some of these evidence-based psychotherapies, cognitive processing therapy for PTSD, some of these things, if we really focus on getting them through 12 sessions of psychotherapy, well, over time, how much payoff does that give us in terms of their needs actually being met and them actually being able to step back down out of treatment and go to their kids' soccer games and not be doing avoidance and experiencing hyperarousal and nightmares and intrusive symptoms and all of these things that can come with post-traumatic stress disorder, if we really met their need up front, like at the beginning of their own engagement in care, over time, how many new seats does that free us up to serve new veterans who might benefit from these treatments? Those are the kinds of things that somebody won the Nobel Prize for saying, um, you know we can 't do we 're minimal satisficers. Herbert Simon you know coined this idea, and the, the academic principle that he modeled was that we 're not perfectly rational decision makers we have bounded rationality, and we have limits on our ability to run through the mental simulation of this truism that any clinician out there knows well i can 't start a nu- new patients if I'm <laughs> <Right>? i 'm full right Everybody yeah. knows that. So, the question becomes well, what's going on overall in our team, and what's our typical proportion of services in our team? You know, most people don't even know in my local team because the data isn't that localized what percentage start medication, what percentage go to group, what patients, you know, benefit from an adjunctive service of some kind, peer support, et cetera. So, that hyperlocality at the place where people are making those care decisions is critical to them making better decisions. And a lot of the data systems are doing it through management from a system perspective just leads to delays in getting the information you need to improve care. And delays in a system can lead to more extreme peaks and troughs and oscillations and instability, which then can lead to systems actually literally doing more harm than good or making mistakes in terms of chasing their tail, trying to find an improvement. And, you know, for us, we are often looking at trade-offs like can I give another one? I, yeah, can I give yeah, another one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We,
0: are, we are rolling.
1: Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm Don't like, apologize. Look at this how is little great. coffee I have had no, actually, this and is, this I is am great. still going on. So, another concern of ours has been the um, opiate epidemic. And so part of the reason that NIDA has really uh, been supporting our work is because there's really a, a limited understanding of how to better get access to some of the most effective medication-assisted therapies for opioid misuse that um, have actually been shown in a lot of research to prevent um, you know relapse, to prevent overdose and death. And um, One of the issues is that one of the more effective treatments that is part of our clinical practice guidelines requires an X waiver from the Drug Enforcement Agency in order to provide it. And again, a lot of teams are flying blind with how well are we using our X waivered provider. Of our total pie of supply of appointments that we have to offer medications, a typical team is actually responsible for making sure that veterans who are depressed, who are on antidepressants, are being followed up, having a therapeutic response, they're being evaluated every no more than 90 days. Um, We have evidence-based pharmacotherapies for alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder. So what we're finding with our Modeling to Learn simulation tools from the local data is that for some teams, they are having all their patients come back at the exact same return to clinic visit interval, like the number of weeks between when you're supposed to come back and see your doctor. But our VA quality standards would suggest that you should be coming back more often if you're on one of these medication-assisted therapies for opioid use disorder than perhaps on an antidepressant. It takes a little bit longer for it to come on board, for you to tell if it's having a therapeutic response. So we have different standards. Just helping some teams optimize their return to clinic visit interval for each patient population, Mm -hmm. helps them optimize their existing staff, and it's like magic to them because people can't wave a magic wand and come up with new staff often, at least not quickly. And so realizing how those rates, the rates of patients coming back, the frequency of those return to clinic um, visits... Can really empower a team to optimize their local resources, something everybody from the taxpayer to the veterans who need the care is really interested in, as well as in VA from VA central office on down to the frontline staff. For some teams, it shows tricky things because, depending on what the local need is, you know, some communities are experiencing an absolute opioid uh, crisis, opiate misuse crisis, but some communities aren't. And so looking at how the local, you know, what's the proportion of patients with each of these needs for medication and thinking about how you allocate your um, supply of providers based on whether they have an X waiver or not, that can be where they get the bang for their buck in their community is thinking about the size of each patient population and how they allocate their hours. Um, sometimes it can be exciting, a principle of systems is non-linearity thinking about like runaway growth, exponential growth or decline, are some of the things people think about. And so sometimes what, what can also happen is that people are finding that they could get the payoff that they want with a much less difficult pain point than they imagined. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, for example, if you're the only ex-waiver provider on your team, it may be difficult to manage all opiate, um, patients struggling with opioid use disorder um, as your primary thing that you're doing all the time. And so sometimes we can show for a team that you know maybe if you were just doing half-time focused on patients with OUD needs, um, then you, you would actually no longer have a backlog of patients waiting to start medication-assisted therapy. So you don't have to do it 100% of the time, all the time, to actually meet your local community's needs. And that can be really relieving because they can feel under pressure um, to do something that they um, may find would be unsustainable from a quality of work life kind of perspective and so those all of these trade-offs or, or another version might be you know if we did change our referral rates to OUD by changing our return to clinic visit interval and adjusting our appointment supply based on with the next waiver or not then we'll get all these new patients for OUD in but as we feared it will increase wait times for our depression patients as we you know switch over and and so finding those trade-offs and optimizing them, I'm going to sound like, you know, a preacher or something, but you can get insights about which, what those trade-offs are as quick as you learn not to touch a hot stove. And the reason I say that is because really within seconds the simulation will tell you if we did this with our appointment supply and this with our return to clinic interval, what impact would it have on each of these patient needs. You can learn it, you know, like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. that's coming I think through we on the it. mic. <laughs> yeah, and that is, from a frontline staff perspective, um, that is a real value add. It does not mean we have to pick this one measure that we're gonna try to move the needle on as if that's the only thing going on around here and just pursue it for the next six months and then see if it worked. When what we know is patients have more than one need, usually those needs change over time, teams change over time, staff turnover. No single provider provides every single treatment that a veteran may need. Again, I've already given the example. I, as a psychologist, cannot prescribe a medication. So it does require a team. The team sees the patient, decides when the patient should start a new plan. So that means that there has to be coordination of how those referral decisions and other things are being made. And all of those factors in a system model can be accounted for in real time and give you feedback about not only what's going on in our data UI from today looking backward two years, but from today looking forward two years. What are the possible scenarios that we could we could get? How could we better get a high yield improvement? How could we choose an action plan more likely to work, sort of place a better initial bet about what would actually improve things for our local veterans? And so um, I really think that what it's helping us to do is better realize those participatory ideas that we were talking about earlier. I think for a lot of people, depending on their training, they may not realize that the real idea there is, you know, whose questions get answered, who has access to the resources and benefits of research, who gets to make decisions about how it gets used, These are some of the principles that we really think, you know, certainly local control is a participatory principle. The ability of us to make sure that all these resources are used to whatever question local clinics or teams would like to ask, that we go in without a pre-baked solution, but actually learn together That's why we call it modeling to learn, Mm -hmm. that the decisions that people might decide to implement are theirs to make, people have a right locally to decide what would make sense and what would be best, but that we could actually add value in our roles as as researchers and, and improvement and implementation scientists by giving them resources for that transparent, equitable access to their own data that they're charting every day and to state of the science tools to improving care. And I think you know most people may be still struggling a little on my quick-as-a-hot-stove simulation kind of example, so I'll just give, if I can, just a super brief example. If you've Please. ever hopped on an app to find out, like, can I lose 10 pounds by my wedding in June, <laughs> that's a stock and flow model, a system dynamic model that's trying to help you think through your typical uh, caloric intake, your energy expenditure and run that sim out through whatever your end date is to see, okay, if you every day were like today, and I ate like this, then by the end of the summer, I could lose 10 pounds, or whatever that may be. And it's up to you to use that simulation input that you can get, again, really quickly, that simulation result, I mean. And think about the input decisions like, well, am I really willing to restrict my calories to a thousand calories a day or is that, you know, and and kind of think about that. Or another analogy, of course, would be if you've ever hopped online and used some, usually they'll just be called a calculator to figure out whether you can pay off your mortgage or your car note, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's using rates like, well, if I saved this much a month and it was growing at this percent, well, that's what system dynamics models do. They're not statistical models. They come actually out of calculus. They're coming out of um, integrating these flows of patients and accounting for where patients accumulate, the states where they accumulate, the places where they have transitions or rates of change between these different states. And so, like a car note, you know, again, I may simulate it out and learn. Oh, wow! The 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 nonlinearity, the high yield payoff, is when I can up my savings from, or my you know payment on the note from. $100 to $125, not 100 to like $500, which is what I feared. So that kind of thing can help you find that little space where even a small change gives a, you know, again, nonlinear, an exponential increase in the amount of money I would have, you know, or how quickly I'd pay down the debt or how much savings I would have when I retire. Those are all examples of simulation that help you inform your decision-making today so that you can then have your new mental model of like, well, I'm just trying to come up with that extra 25 bucks a month, so maybe I'm not going to get the $5 coffee. You have like a new <laughs> rule of thumb in your Absolutely. mind. Well, that's what we think we're doing with Modeling to Learn, and it's actually quite different than most of what people talk about at the conference, which includes like months and months of implementation planning to like you know, change and restructure systems and pursue change. And people are getting, you know, um, a lot of good work is going on. But the idea that we have by focusing the models on those decisions that frontline staff make several times a day, like when should I see this patient in front of me again? And typically in the past, they were, as I've said, flying blind. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that accumulates up to. And now, you know, I had one team, for example, that learned that if they push their return to clinic interval from four weeks out to five weeks, which is from their historical average, they could serve, this was a small team, five new veterans a week in that particular service. Well, you know, they're like, well, clinically, most patients that I could see in four weeks, I could see in five weeks. I mean, there's going to be a rare example at a single patient. But now that I have that new mental model of what that is. If I'm with a patient that I think I could see in five weeks, then now I know that the win I could get for those veterans waiting for care is up to five new veterans a week could get into care. And they would have never known that they could get that much bang for their buck right, from that one. Right, small little tweak. And that small little tweak, same uh-huh. kind of idea. So I think that what we're really trying to do is rather than just big, long strategic planning processes somehow, just changing all those little decisions all throughout the day that add up. So that's why modeling to learn really focuses on the decisions that frontline staff make and learning from simulations so that they might have a different rule of thumb when they make some of those decisions informed because the model's at a higher level of aggregation of the team and all the patients served by their team of what would work better for most. And again, the decision is still a decision between a patient and provider of like, what's right for this veteran right in front of me. But now I'm sort of not flying blind Now I have insights about what that's likely to lead to, and including scenarios like, well, this is gonna look worse at first, like a few more veterans will be waiting for the first three months, but then it's gonna get way better and stay better for the next two years. Well, that can really help stay the course for three months if you really can see in the simulation the benefit that you're likely to have for your patients. And so we're sort of trying to take the advantages that we all enjoy, like all of us here at the meeting, Adam, you and I, took planes here, and we probably were really glad that our pilots had trained using simulation before we hopped in their plane. And for anyone who's had a surgery out there, glad that their surgeon used some simulation learning before they hopped under the knife or on that surgery bed. And the same thing here. I mean, we think that frontline staff are the ones making those appropriate clinical care decisions at the point of care, and we want to empower them to make more optimized decisions. And if, you know, we've gotten used to using simulation for surgery and, and you know, um, flights, I think that's probably the more apt analogy than even the dieting or the, um, you know, financial situations, although those are very pragmatic health and financial concerns. And the reason is, is because when you're talking about um, suicide, when you're talking about overdose, when you're focusing on people who are struggling with um, lapsing back to alcohol or Um, other types of substance misuse and the chronic impairment that can be associated with PTSD, then the costs of learning by trial and error in the real world are not just chasing your tail and demoralizing staff. And it really is that you could do more harm than good in pursuing ineffective strategy for patients who are struggling and in need. And so we really do think that um, the health impact is, is sort of the same. You simulate... When it would be risky, expensive, um, unsafe to learn in the real world, and I think that um, again, helping people to quickly model to learn to find what was is likely to work locally for their patients um, has advantages for staff, has advantages for patients, and, and could be something that really moves the needle in the in the area of implementation science, which is why we're all here at this meeting. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I, I mean. You said so much there, but I just want to.
1: Sorry, thank I didn't you. let you get no. a word in edgewise. No, wise, no, Adam. no. I'm so <laughs> glad you
0: did. And I'm glad that at the end you circled it back to patient centered and what it really meant at the end of the day to use these kind of advanced modeling and dynamic systems to really say, this is going to help our patients. This is going to help the veterans that we serve. And I think that, you know, that brings the whole package together nicely in terms of a participatory approach and really why you're exploring this, this work uh, is because you want to improve the care for our veterans. And you know I really admire that.
1: Well, if you picked any restaurants via Yelp while you were here in DC, as we did, then you know that you go to a restaurant to eat. And a veteran who's struggling with any of these addiction and mental health concerns is coming in to stop suffering. And so they want these effective treatments that we have shown through decades of research through lots of randomized controlled trials, then meta-analyses and systematic reviews and effectiveness studies through rolling them out in the VA nationally. We've shown that sometimes, depending on the treatment, 50 or 60 percent of veterans who get these treatments in the real world can be asymptomatic. And these treatments are, some of them, shorter-term treatments. I mean, that is a headline news story that many veterans don't know. Um, but like Yelp, Um, Even if that's what a veteran is coming in for, when you read the restaurant review, you don't just think about the food. You may check out those photos. You think about the service, how long people had to wait to get seated, to get their water even, every little piece along the way. And what a system model can do is help you account for all those interacting variables in real time so that we no longer are doing worse in healthcare than a four-star restaurant can do on Yelp. We can make sure that that full experience from the moment your need is identified and you've taken the big step of walking through the door to get help, that the way that you're referred to get your need met, how long you wait to get the right treatment to meet your need, all of those parts are as optimized as they can be. That's what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. with Modeling to Learn.
0: And I love uh, so much that you highlighted this idea of hyper-localization and really optimizing the strategy based on that particular clinic and those particular set of providers and, Mm -hmm. you know, travel times to that particular clinic, you know, all these variables that are going to change depending on where you're at.
1: Yes. All the more reason why the SIM and getting real time from your data is really important because I think it's reasonable for frontline staff in Cleveland to say, well, just because it worked in Houston doesn't mean it's going to work here. I mean, that just seems completely reasonable as a question. And often what we are doing is trying to take something that works somewhere, figure out why it worked, and use it somewhere else. What this is doing, the reason I did go ahead and spook everyone by mentioning calculus, is (laughs) because- I was like, calculus? (laughs) Hope we're not going there. (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing is, we do rely, back to that, we do rely on our engineers when Uh we are in these tall buildings downtown in DC, when we get in these planes. And if you know I were to take my coffee cup and you were to take your pen and we were going to throw them across the room from where we're seated now, Adam, we should, again, using calculus, be able to know exactly where our pen and cup are going to land. And it's going to vary as a function of their, you know, their mass, their size, their aerodynamics. My arm versus your arm. So it, those local details, the actual measurements of, you know, the weight of my item and your item, that matters. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental math of knowing what its trajectory should be and where it will land is something knowable. It, it, some people might even consider it a mathematical fact that you can chart that course and understand it. And that's what. That's what we're doing with our modeling. Actually, is saying, okay, well, the fundamental math of things is always the same, no matter where we try it. But those local details, like, well, how many staff do you actually have, and how many, you know, how are you using your X waiver appointments relative to your local need for opiate um, treatment? Those kinds of scenarios, the local. It does matter a lot, just Absolutely. as your arm and my yeah. arm might be different as we pitch our items across <laughs> the room.
0: Exactly. Right?
1: So it's really a combination, but it doesn't mean then that the strategy people would do once they're armed with that insight, you know, what, how does this work in my lo- from my local team data, whatever they might need to do with, from their simulation learning will be hyperlocal again. So, it's not kind of shoehorning the same solution everywhere you go, it's just making sure everyone has the resources, equitable access to these resources to run the SIMS from their data to figure, figure that out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see how that'd be really revolutionary in a system as large as the VA um, when thinking about implementing these really uh, promising and evidence-based interventions is how can we do this at a local level to meet the needs of the local patients.
1: Yes, and I'm really honored to be part of the VA mission and to try to tackle this problem first in the VA, and one of the benefits to all of us in the U.S. of us doing that is that these resources are public domain resources that they could apply in all the other healthcare systems to help other patients who um, might need it in other healthcare settings as well. Mm -hmm.
0: And I also like that you brought up the idea of calculus and engineers and just reminding us that this is a multidisciplinary approach. This is not, uh, well, first of all, obviously we have the veterans, we have the providers, we have the implementation scientists, we have the engineers, and then the educator, this whole feedback accreditors, loop, it's, the yes. educators, so I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a very multidisciplinary, and I also appreciate that about it.
1: Yes, it's true. We definitely are learning a lot from doing a true team-based science, and, and I'm full of analogies, <laughs> <laughs> as you can hear. Um, but there's something really interesting about, like, without the engineers, you know, we wouldn't have the models. Um, so my analogy for this one is potato salad, right? Like, <laughs> okay. it's only potato salad if it has potatoes in it. Otherwise, it's some other kind of salad. Right. Um, right? But then all the other pieces, like, you know, do you prefer a mustard? Like, all the other ingredients really make it, a, you know, a salad you'd recommend, that you'd be proud of, like, that you wouldn't deviate from for years, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we have, again, each little piece from the, f- the aspect of focusing on design to making the videos available to focusing on making sure every discipline at the front line can get accreditation toward their licensure for doing the program. Like every little piece of that has, is what's turned this into what we think will um, really have an impact. And so that's you know, where we are now in, in really calling it an accredited program. And even that, I think the ability to get licensure credit during your normal staff meeting with your existing team across all the disciplines that you work with. Um, we often train in silos. You know, I train with other psychologists, psychiatrists, train with psych- psychiatrists. So to train in quality improvement with your team at scale nationally is also a little bit different and new um, for us to pursue it that way. So yeah, I hope it really could make an impact for sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: um, and I know we've been chatting a lot, but before we just wind down, I, I feel like you've painted this picture for us about what what you've done and where your research is and kind of um, help us see a little bit more about how you are now uh, sort of beginning to scale this up and, and implement across, across the VA system.
1: Yeah, so um, we trained up the existing quality improvement leads in the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. They're known as technical assistance specialists. And they are ready to facilitate, co-facilitate at first with us, the program Modeling to Learn. And so we are anticipating starting in 2019 to actually scale it and, and go through the learning bumps of working with a lot more clinics than we started with in our R21. So this R21 mechanism from the National Institute of Health for viewers at home who may not know it is actually an exploratory developmental grant. It has language in it like high risk, high reward types of funding. And the clinics that worked with us to develop the program have actually doubled the number of veterans in one clinic that are getting evidence-based psychotherapies for PTSD and depression. And actually, another clinic has had an increase um, of 16-fold, and they've been able to sustain those improvements, respectively, for a year uh, in one case, and now we're at about eight months of follow-up for the others. And so these are preliminary results, um, and I do hope to, um, you know, as we launch to more clinics and learn more, I do plan on continuing to model <laughs> to learn, because sure. um, there'll be more to learn as we um, work with lots more clinics around the country. But, um, you know, those, I really want to thank all the frontline staff in my own healthcare system and that were part of our pilot studies that really helped us get to a place where we could build resources that were more responsive to their needs at the point of care. And um, I hope that we can, you know, continue to be responsive. And I think working in a participatory way is why we have continued to to gauge traction every step of the way. I mean, I know that uh, I may have exceeded some folks' interest, but I just want to say one super critical thing that is one of those moments where stakeholders really align. It's when you can show when a clinic is doing the best they can with the resources that they have, which our program and our simulation models can show. So I gave a bunch of scenarios where people could find the improvement that would work for them locally as a function of their local staffing and patient needs. But sometimes what it actually shows is, yeah, you guys can't respond any more than you are. You're already fully optimized locally. And it turns out that that is something from our leadership who interface with Congress and are here in D.C. all the way down to the frontline staff are really interested in knowing. And scientifically, a lot of times the improvement or implementation strategies that people may be testing, when they hear that the barrier is we don't have enough time or we don't have enough staff, those things aren't quantified and accounted for. And indeed, you might be pursuing a strategy that inadvertently assumes that your staff have like 200% of the time that they actually have. And so system dynamics has this, like, idea. uh, I heard John Sturman at MIT say this in a training I was at. You're getting too far away from the physics of your problem. By which he meant conservation of things like time. So we're able to work with our frontline staff and and make sure that what we're looking at is optimizing their existing total pie of time. Maybe slicing it up differently or something like that to, to better optimize for their patients' needs. But we're not inadvertently growing the pie in some sort of fantasy land and pursuing strategies that are unrealistic. And so even those kinds of things are really innovating value adds for a frontline staff who's like, maybe if I just duck, I'll miss this next quality improvement initiative. That can be really empowering um, as well. So, okay. Maybe I should just come back and let you know once we've launched <laughs> nationally we would um, love to and have once you we have, have the final yeah. results, we can talk yeah. about what we're learning at that point, too. But it's yeah. it's really an honor to be asked, Adam, to, to be on the podcast and talk yeah. about what we're up to. Uh,
0: Lindsay, this has been a really remarkable session. I feel like I've learned a lot. I feel like um, our listeners have hopefully uh, learned a lot and also maybe just uh, letting some ideas uh, marinate a little in their brains, uh, continue the food analogies. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, really, thank you so much for joining us um, and really sharing this knowledge with us. And we would love to have you back and um, touch back in about how this uh, line of research, line of implementation is going.
1: Well, thanks to you, Adam and Joe, and everybody at the Rocky Mountain MIREC for putting not only the podcast together, but for uh, trying to make all this stuff accessible to anybody out there who might not be at the conference through the podcast and through Twitter. You guys are doing a really great job, a great service. So I really appreciate what you're doing.
0: Excellent. We appreciate that. Well, everybody, that's going to do it for this special edition podcast from the Dissemination and Implementation Conference in Washington, D.C. Until next time, join us for more innovative uh, interviews in important research and work in veterans' health.